On behalf of our Wallace family, if you're tuning in, don't consider yourself a part of the church. We are extremely grateful that you've joined us. Our prayer and expectation is that you would be richly encouraged this morning by your time with us. We are looking, according to my promise last week, at two verses we studied last Sunday from 1 Peter chapter 2. They are verses 9 and 10. We're getting a glimpse into the heart of the Apostle Peter, not only what is in his heart, but the needs of those to whom he writes, believing that the Word of God is eternal and speaks today. This is as relevant for us, 21st century human beings, as it was to those who received it in the first century. Here are the verses we'll be looking at. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, But now you have received mercy. What do you think is the most awesome, stunning way you could be known? The most marvelous identity you could have? Nobel Peace Prize winner? Emmy? Grammy winner? President of a country? Super Bowl winner? World Series MVP, a billionaire, the GOAT, that's a sports term for the greatest of all time. Can you think of anything more wonderful than being called a people for God's own possession? Anything more stunning and awe-inspiring than being the Lord's own treasure? I can't. It's why I wanted to return to this text and look at that phrase in detail with you this morning. I think there's something wrong with me if when I read in the Bible that belonging to Jesus means I am the Lord's precious possession, if that doesn't send uh, chills up my spine, there's something wrong with me. This is how God esteems you if you're a follower of Jesus. There's nothing better to say about a human being, nothing, than they are the Lord's precious possession, his treasure. So here we are. This is one of four phrases Peter gives to his readers, and you and me by extension, to frame our identity, to give us a sense of who we are, to tell us how God sees and values us and wants us to think about ourselves. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a chosen race and a people for God's own possession. And wonder of wonders, one of the points we saw last week, is that the Gentiles are being called the same thing that God used to describe his people Israel in the Old Testament. So let's ask 
these questions of this marvelous phrase, really what should take our breath away, you're a people for God's own possession. Let's ask these four, uh, four questions. Number one, how is right relationship with God expressed in the Bible? You belong to God. He possesses you. That's one way you know you've got it right spiritually. You understand that God is your God. You are his possession. Here's the backstory on that. God has always wanted a people on earth who enjoyed him, who knew him, who savored him, and brought him glory. God has always wanted a people on earth who, by the way they lived, reflected back to God something of the glory of his own marvelous moral character. God has always wanted a people on earth, human beings, skin and bones, who modeled in some measure among themselves the affection and the unity that existed in the Trinity itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God wants a people on earth who enjoy something that and mirror something of that. So he started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve to be that people. They failed. They said, we have our own ideas about what makes human beings glorious. God started again with Abraham. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name would be turned uh, changed to Israel, and it is the nation of Israel with that would then become that people through whom God would be known on the earth. A holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a people for God's own possession. Through the pen of Moses, we see how this comes out in Deuteronomy 26, 16, and 19. Perhaps you'd follow along in the outline. This day, the Lord... Remember that Deuteronomy is being written at the end of Israel's 40 years wandering in the wilderness. They're about to take the promised land. So it's 40 years later, the second giving of the law, the Deuteronomus, the second giving of the law, Moses writing, this day the Lord commands you to do these statutes and rules. He only commands what is good for you. Obedience to God's law is the way you find your humanity. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God, that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and obey his voice. That's a good thing to declare because we belong to you, we're going to obey you. That's what is owed you. That's what you're deserved. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he promised you. Now that refers back to the day of assembly recorded in Exodus 19, where in Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6, God tells his people that they are his treasured possession and to be a royal priesthood. So Paul, excuse me, Moses is reminding them of this promise from 40 years earlier as he promised you that you're to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he's made, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he has promised. How much more highly could a human body of people be esteemed than that? Well, 
How about Isaiah's words in Isaiah 43? Because you are precious in my eyes. Does that send chills up your spine? Precious in the eyes of God. And honored. And I love you. And I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, don't withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. This is the family God constitutes for himself, for his dwelling place, for his enjoyment. He wants a family. He wants to be part, us to know him as father, as provider, as the head of the family, the one in whom we delight. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. What an identity. God created you for his glory. God made you for himself. In the New Testament, the people of God are identified in the same way with this addition. We belong to Jesus. You understand what belonging is? It implies ownership, rights. We belong to the one who has rights over us. And that person has a caretaking responsibility, and we give that person our loyalty. Sometimes we formalize that in our culture by taking vows. Husband and wife belong to each other by exchanging vows at a wedding. When you join the church, you take vows, symbolizing that you belong to the church. When God enters into relationship with people on the earth, he enters into a covenant. It is an agreement of belonging. God vows to be our God. We vow our obedience to him, to follow him, to trust him. In the New Testament, you see this language of belonging to Jesus. It's often in the very simple form, literally in the Greek, being of Christ. So for example, Mark 9, 41, Jesus said, truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will not lose his reward. Romans 1.6, Paul says to Christians, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What does God call us out of darkness and unbelief and self to? To belong to Jesus Christ. Romans 7.4, we'll unpack this in detail in my adult teaching fellowship at some point. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, Jesus you no longer belong, spiritually dead, to Adam. You belong to Jesus, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. You can only do nothing of value for God until you belong to Jesus Christ by faith. Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you belong to Jesus by faith, you have the Spirit of Christ. Paul, speaking of the resurrection, promises that we too will be raised from the dead on that last day. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits of the resurrected bodies, then those at his coming who belong to Christ. If you belong to Jesus by faith, be assured he will raise you up on the last day. And then Paul says in Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If you belong to Christ, you have a completely new relationship to sin. 
Let's move on to the second question. In what ways do we belong to Christ? So, so you read in 1 Peter, you're a, a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. That's the phrase that's captured our attention and our affection this morning. And it, it bears teasing out. It bears extrapolating. It bears explanation. I want to know. I want to know it till it sends chills up my spine, as I said earlier. In what ways do we belong to Christ? Well, thankfully, the Bible teases out a variety of ways of explaining what this means. The Bible appears to common uh, institutions and practices in our culture to reveal to us the multifaceted glory of belonging to Jesus. So think about the different ways you can have belonging in, in our world and how that relates to belonging to Jesus. You can belong to something by creation. An artist creates something. That painting belongs to them. They created it. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's. He created it. And everything belongs to Him. So it's no wonder then that Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We belong to Jesus by virtue of the new creation He has made us by His Spirit. You can belong to someone, secondly, by birth. I was born into a family and belonged to my parents. The scripture says that the Spirit of God has been given as a seal, a certification, a stamp of our belonging to God. Ephesians 1.13 In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Spirit. We belong to Jesus by virtue of our new birth in the Spirit. You can belong by adoption. Perhaps you were adopted earlier in life. That means you belong to a new family. The New Testament shows us that when we are justified by faith in Jesus, we are immediately adopted into the family of God. We belong to Jesus, our brother. God is our father. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So Jesus is the Son of God. If we belong to Jesus, we are sons and daughters of God. You can belong to something, fourth, through marriage. At weddings, spouses exchange vows that reveal their belonging to each other. This is based on Genesis 2, when God instructs couples to leave and to cleave, to become one flesh. They belong to each other. So much so that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that when you're married, your spouse's body belongs to you. Your body belongs to your spouse. That sure does keep us from abusing each other, doesn't it? Should. The church is the bride of Christ, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. We're married to Jesus as his bride. And he waits for us in glory for the final inauguration celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 21.9 Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We're all married to Jesus. What a faithful, compassionate, loving husband he is to all of us. You can... Uh, you can experience belonging through a purchase. You go into a store. You pay money. You walk out of the store. It belongs to you. You paid for it. 
Suppose one of the store employees comes out and says, hey, you shoplifted, come back here, you're under arrest. And you say, well, just a second, here's this thing I bought, here's the receipt. This proves I paid for it, and therefore this thing belongs to me. This is how Jesus reasons when you're attacked as being worthless, as being valueless. He purchased you by his blood, Peter tells us earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1. He purchased you by his blood. You belong to him. And when anyone, when anyone, the devil begins to accuse you and condemn you of being worthless in God's sight, you point the devil to the cross and say, there's the receipt. The cross of Jesus Christ is the proof, the receipt, that I have been purchased through the substitutionary death of Jesus in my place. Notice how Paul reasons that in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. You belong to Jesus. He purchased you. So glorify God in your body. The best reason to use your physical body for the glory of God, Paul says, is Christ purchased you as his precious possession through the cross. Six we things belong to us by personal property. Your property belongs to you if you're able to have any personal property. There was this example of radical generosity in the early church on the day of Pentecost. We're immediately following it. We read in Acts 2.45, they were selling their possessions and belongings. What were they? They were things they had that belonged to them. Personal property. Distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This kind of radical generosity Jamie alluded to in his prayer earlier in the worship service. God so values personal property that in the Old Testament particularly there are specific laws protecting your personal property. If I was out in the field and I saw a cow walking by that I knew belonged to you, I was responsible for that cow to return it to you. This is why theft is sin. You never take or destroy what doesn't belong to you. It belongs to another. You have no right to it. Jesus died to make us his personal possession. Paul's quick to remind the elders in the church of Ephesus that on his last visit with them, recorded for us in Acts 20, 28, he tells the elders, Be, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. What's the best motivation for the elders of the church to shepherd the flock of God? That church was obtained by God's own blood he says. Therefore, it belongs to him. Number seven, things belong to us through searching. Children, we didn't have one this year, but remember in the past, the Easter egg hunt we would have outside, you'd get a basket, mom and dad would turn you loose, you'd go find things, you'd pick up pieces of candy or whatever, you found them. They belong to you. In the same way, Jesus came to earth seeking treasure. He tells us through the parable, the pearl of great price, that Jesus gave up everything to make you 
His pearl of immeasurable price gave up his life to make you his precious possession. The good shepherd, we're told, leaves the 99 to go seek and to find the one lost sheep. Matthew 18, 12. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? And does, not, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? If you feel like you've strayed from God, why not assume Jesus is seeking you now? Doing things in your life to bring you to your senses, to bring you back to himself. Maybe making life difficult. Maybe he's blessed you in ways you never imagined and the result is you're feeling like you can make it on your own. No. Whatever's going on in your life constructed by Jesus to bring you back into the fold, to know him as the precious, gentle, wonderful shepherd of your soul. Things belong to us by virtue of our wages. Number eight, your paycheck belongs to you because you made an exchange with your employer, your time and expertise for your paycheck. The parable of the laborers uh, that Jesus taught in Matthew 20. The employer tells those who work for him during the day, take what belongs to you, your wages, and go. They weren't real happy because people at the beginning of the day who worked hard all along got the same wages as people who worked for an hour of the day at the end. They weren't real happy. They thought that was an injustice. And here's what the employer says to the employees. I choose to give to the last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Thank God that what belongs to God is a heart of irrepressible, immense generosity. He loves to lavish upon the unworthy, the undeserving, the incapable, the unable. He loves to lavish upon them his grace, his salvation, the riches of his presence. Things belong to you, number nine, through capture. What an army captures through warfare and winning a battle belongs to them. The Bible depicts our conversion as being captured or rescued from the domain of the devil, the kingdom of darkness, and transferred or delivered by rescue into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. One way Jesus put it is that he came to bind the strong man and to plunder his house. Matthew 12, 29. How can someone enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he will plunder his house. Any time a human being is converted from all the tribes and tongues of the earth, Jesus is plundering from the strong man, the devil's house, those who would now belong to him. Number 10, there's a lot of different ways God communicates through common life experience, cultural experience, the ways that we belong to him. Things belong to you by common association. Maybe you belong to a team, you belong to an organization, you belong to a union, you belong to a church. When the Apostle Paul, when he was not converted and was known as Saul, when he was persecuting Christians, we read this in Acts 9-2. Saul asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, how were Christians known? They belonged by common association to the way, to Jesus Christ, to the church of Jesus. Men or women, he might bring them down to Jerusalem. Since that time, we who belong to Jesus are persecuted by virtue of our guilt by association. Jesus said, you'll be persecuted for belonging to me. Jesus almost said, don't take it personally. They hated me. 
No matter what you do, they may hate you. That's going to come up later in this first epistle, being persecuted because we belong by common association to Jesus and his church. Number 11, kind of a long list. (laughs) Things belong to you by inheritance. Janice and I have some paintings and furniture and other things that belong to us. We didn't purchase them. They came to us through my parents' will, so that when my parents died, these things we inherited. They belong to us. If you belong to Christ, you're his inheritance. This is what's promised in Psalm 2, 8. The Father says, Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. This is, this is being fulfilled now as Wallace and other churches all over the world send missionaries all over the world collecting Jesus' possessions, his inheritance for him according to the promise of his father, his father to give his son a people that he would enjoy forever from every tribe and tongue. This is foreshadowed when Isaiah 19.25 calls Israel my inheritance. Now it's all the nations. And we belong to uh, something by virtue of organic connection. Does my hand belong to my body? Indeed it does. This is the way Paul reasons in 1 Corinthians 12. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. (laughs) I think we saw earlier Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you've died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. When you believe in Jesus, there is an organic connection between the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. His death, death to sin, was your death to sin. His resurrection to life was your resurrection to life. We have been raised up with Christ. Two more. We belong to something uh, by right or because it's deserving. So that when Paul thinks about ministry, he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure of the gospel in char- jars of clay. That's us. We're weak, we're frail, and in of themselves we're nothing. We're the jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. When serious Christians bring about any fruit for God, they're quick to realize God did this, not us. We're just jars of clay. All the power belongs to God, and therefore all the praise, all the glory, he is deserving of it. And here's the last one. We understand belonging in terms of bearing resemblance. About a year ago, my wife went down to my workbench in the basement, and she sorted everything out. She took the flat-headed screws and separated them from the nails and from this and that, and she put them all in a neat little tidy Uh, containers on the workbench because these didn't belong with these. Oh, these, all these common screws, these all belong together. They bear resemblance to each other. We belong to Christ and therefore are called to bear his resemblance by our conduct. This is the way Paul reasons in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. How do you get any stronger than that? to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let the fact that you are possessed and the precious treasure of the God of glory be reflected in the way you think, speak, act, and treat other people. That's a long point number two. The next are a bit shorter. 
we're asking four questions of this wonderful, breathtaking phrase, we are a people for God's own possession. Three, why do we resist this? Why does this fact not bring me more joy? Why is this glorious truth not more compelling to my conduct? I think the answer is we are by nature addicted to self-rule. We are extremely slow to give up our autonomy, being a law unto ourselves. There is an insidious propensity in your heart and mine to self-rule and self-determination. And when you stop and think about it, it is pure insanity to think we can rule ourselves in the faith, to cast off God's rule. It simply can't be done. God will always be God. And we may think we rule ourselves, but it's, his rule is never, ever thwarted. One of the ways the Bible exposes the, the, the folly of this, the insanity of this, is with the illustration of the potter and the clay. This is in the Old Testament. Paul picks up on it in, in Romans chapter 9 in the New. And the Bible is just using a very common occurrence. Everyone back then knew that there were potters who got clay and made things out of them. Look how Isaiah 29 puts it. And there are other allusions to this illustration as well in the Old Testament. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, you think you do. Nothing's hidden from the Lord. You who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, because it's not light outside, we stupidly think God doesn't see us? Really? You who say, who sees us? Who knows us? It's the propensity of our hearts to deny that all of our living is quorum Deo in the face of God. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Here's the potter right there, right? A human being. Here's the clay, just dirt. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing Made should say of its maker, here's the clay speaking, he didn't make me, or the thing formed, here's the clay speaking, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Do you see the absurdity of it? The clay saying, you didn't make me? What planet are you on? The clay saying, you have no understanding? Are you kidding? This is the absurdity of thinking. We can rule ourselves. And when people are very honest with themselves, it's often one of the main reasons they don't want to be converted to Christianity. If they're really honest, they'll say, I don't want to give up my autonomy. I don't want God ruling me. I don't want God telling me what to do. If that's the position you find yourself in, maybe meditate on this analogy. Think it through. Find a Bible believer to, to talk it through. And... and Find someone who's, who struggles with that themselves. Every Bible believer struggles still with this propensity in their heart to rule themselves. We do. Find out how 
the Spirit of God has made a difference in their heart finding joy and peace living under the rule of God. Explore it. Don't stay there. We'll find that at the heart of this resistance to God's rule is a fundamental distrust in his goodness, an excessive reliance on our own interpretation of what is best for ourselves. And think, think about Israel's experience. The one people on earth with closest proximity to God. They had manifestations of God, the glory cloud, the fire. They had miracle upon miracle. God was right there. And yet Deuteronomy says they were plagued with this propensity. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. In view of the obvious, how could you be brought through the Red Sea, that miracle, and, you're, and, and the sea crushing your enemies behind you and not you, and think you could do everything right in your own eyes? Fact is, we are not good enough, wise enough, or strong enough to rule ourselves, to take God on our own terms. When you rest in the glory of belonging to God, you'll say with the psalmist, Psalm 138, God will fulfill his purpose for me. I think that's one of the underlying fears that drives self-determination. If I cede it to someone else, I lose control. You don't have control. God God, the sovereign, the good God, will fulfill his purposes for me. Perhaps there's a variation on that in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Last point, it's brief. For what purposes does God possess you? I can find no finer expression, answer to that question, than Titus Chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, written by the Apostle Paul. Just the, 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 just the majesty of these verses is breathtaking. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, Jesus, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Think being a law unto yourself. Being your own interpreter of reality. Being a master of your own faith, the captain of your own ship. Think, no one has the right to tell me what happiness is for me. That's what Jesus calls us to renounce in the gospel and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God and Savior, no dispute, we're waiting for his appearing, who gave himself for us. It's like when Paul writes and he, he mentions the name of Jesus, it's inescapable for him to tell us again what Jesus did. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawlessness, all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, that's about 16 sermons just in those verses itself. Let me just finish by teasing out, looking at the word for, for, which generally expresses purpose in language. Let me tease out a number of fours that we see in this verse, and then we'll be finished. Notice salvation is for all people. The grace of God has appeared for all people. That is because 
God is worthy of the worship and the devotion and the trust of all creatures. He deserves it. He desires it of all people. Paul says we are waiting for our blessed hope. What is that? It's the appearing of Jesus Christ. Our confidence certainly that when he appears, we will be transformed to have bodies like his, see him as he is, enjoy his presence with unhindered fellowship, without sin, without death, without sorrow, without pain. We are Jesus' reward, and he can't wait to see us. He wants us to behold his glory, to be ravished by his beauty, to be transfixed by his majesty, and stand in all of his splendor. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. He wants us to be caught up in all of the glory that he is. And then it says Jesus gave himself for us. The price that you and I belong to God in safety, in peace, with nothing to prove, is that Jesus forfeited what belonged to him a peaceful claim on God as Father, who on the cross turns His face away and pours out His wrath for the sins of His people on His Son, leading Jesus to cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus forfeited all that belonged to Him. He belonged to a class of people who was perfect, who never sinned, who was pure, perfectly lawful in all things, body and soul. Love the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. Every nanosecond of his life, what belonged to him was justification based on his performance, and yet he is treated on the cross as if he had committed all of your sins. He forfeited what belonged to him to purify us from all lawlessness by his blood. Think of the power of that life, that one life, to cleanse all of his, the millions of his people who belong to him. From their lawlessness. He says God gave himself. Jesus gave himself for us. We belong to each other. As much as we belong to Jesus. And that calls for care. For each other. And esteem for each other. The way he esteems us. I'm the Lord's precious possession. So are you. And that better be reflected. In the way I esteem you. Care for you. Disagree with you serve you, sacrifice for you, love you. Jesus gave himself, uh, Jesus died um, for him, gave himself for, uh, gave himself for us. That means Jesus saves you for his employment. Excuse me. Okay, rewind the tape. I just butchered that. (laughs) Jesus saves you for his enjoyment. He came that he might enjoy you as his precious possession. And then finally, to purify us from every lawless deed, a people for himself, for his own pleasure, who were zealous for good deeds. The Christian gospel frees you to live for something greater than yourself, more enduring than your own agenda. Frankly, more valuable than your idea of what your life is all about. Zealous for good deeds. Is it not safe to say that those who truly grasp the glory of being Jesus' precious possession will have some amount of zeal to do good for him? Yes. 
And if I find my, there's zeal lacking in my heart, I've got to do a lot of heart searching to find out what is missing in my understanding of how the Lord esteems me and how much I value that. So, what sorts of good works? We could talk for hours about that. Think of it in very simple terms. What sorts of good works? Anything that reveals you belong to Jesus. Anything that reveals you want to look like Jesus. Anything that reveals you love Jesus. And that's going to look different in all of our lives. But as we're asking the question, what good works, Lord, have you ordained for me, my wife, my kids, my friends, my children, my fellow church members? (laughs) Give us by the Spirit a zeal for those that somehow matches the magnitude of your love for us poured out on the cross. Zeal for good works. What sort of good works? Works that reveal you belong to him, you want to be like him, and you love him. Let's pray. Indeed, our Father, the grace of God has appeared. Grace's name is Jesus. And you've come to rescue us from our own lawlessness and to purify for yourself a people for your own possession. What could be better? How much more highly could anyone be esteemed? And what better life could be lived than one responding to that grace zealous for good works. Bring that to pass in my life and the life of my brothers and sisters for your glory's sake. Amen.